And you may be seated. The innocent headwaters of the Chattooga River meander along for miles. But near the end, just before the river plunges into Lake Tallulah, the waters turn violent. In the words of Psalm 46, the waters roar. If you're rafting this section, the river becomes a hairy rod full of violent sluices and keeper hydraulics. Over the years, dozens of boaters have died in the narrow, turbulent channels of the Chattooga River, but I never thought I would be one. Not until one particular trip. It happened at a place called Seven Foot Falls. And can you imagine why they would name it such a name? Seven Foot Falls. It's a rapid name for obvious reasons. Our boat got twisted in the entrance to the falls. Thus, we hit the ledge sideways. The back of the raft where I was sitting flipped up into the air and catapulted me over the guys in the bow. I landed in the swirling waters at the bottom of the falls. In retrospect, I was really only underwater just a few seconds, but I'm telling you, it felt like an eternity. At first, the churning water just kind of held me stationary. Finally, the hydraulic sucked me under and pushed me out the bottom of the hole. I popped up, popped up 20 yards downstream, gasping for breath, but happy to be alive. Prior to that day, I always thought that it was my turn to die, that I would face death full of courage and full of faith. But I had to admit, trapped in that whirling current, I met a dangerous enemy. I was gripped by a villain called fear. What about you? Have you ever been afraid? Several years ago, USA Today ran an article entitled, Fear, What Americans Are Afraid Of Today. Here are the conclusions. 54% of Americans fear being in a car crash. 53% fear having cancer. 50% fear the survival of Social Security, and probably rightly so. 40% of Americans fear getting mugged in their own neighborhood. 36% fear getting food poisoning from tainted meat. 35% fear having Alzheimer's. 33% fear being the victim of a violent crime. 25% of Americans fear natural disasters. 20% fear a random bombing. Folks today are surrounded by all kinds of fear. Consult the media, and here's what you'll hear. Food sprayed with pesticides will kill me. Be afraid. Unfiltered water from my faucet will kill me. Be afraid. Cholesterol will kill me. Be afraid. A lack of cholesterol will kill me. Be afraid. Fluorocarbons in the air will kill me. Be afraid. Overexposure to the sun will kill me. Be afraid. Cell phone transmissions will kill me. Be afraid. Radon gas coming up from my basement will kill me. Be afraid. Saccharin in my coffee will kill me. Be afraid. Processed sugar in my coffee will kill me. Be afraid. Coffee will kill me. Be afraid. People today live with all kinds of fears. 
The late advice columnist Ann Landers received 10,000 letters a month, mostly from people with problems. And she said that by far the number one problem people faced was fear. Everybody struggles with some kind of fear. You can be sure the writer of Psalm 46 was tempted with fear. Bible scholars suggest the psalm was written in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. In the 8th century B.C., the Assyrian Empire ruled the world. The Assyrians' king, Sennacherib, was ambitious and ruthless and bent on world domination. His mighty army had conquered Syria and Israel to the north, and his sights were now set on the land of the pharaohs to the south, to Egypt. And yet in between Sennacherib's army and the riches of the Nile was the Jewish capital of Jerusalem. Understand what King Hezekiah was up against. The Assyrian army was probably 200,000 troops, and its soldiers were brutal and bloodthirsty. These Assyrians would impale their conquered foes, literally shish them. They would skin them alive like fish. They would cut off their hands and feet and noses and ears, pluck out their eyes, even yank out their tongues. They would pile up skulls by the city's gates just to inspire terror in its residents. Imagine trying to go to sleep knowing that the baddest of all bad guys was camped in your front yard waiting on the light of day to attack you and your family. Imagine. You can bet Hezekiah was scared spitless. And yet the frightened king prayed. He asked God for help. And three times in the scripture, three times no less, just so that we don't miss it, God documents his deliverance. 2 Kings 19, 2 Chronicles 32, and Isaiah 37. We're told that in the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord came against the Assyrians. This angelic avenger drew his sword. And in that one night, he slew 185,000 Assyrian troops. By morning light, the remainder of the enemy army was in full retreat. And it's then that someone, perhaps King Hezekiah, maybe his sidekick, the prophet Isaiah, but one of Jerusalem's survivors looked over the wall at the carnage and the death and marveled at God's miraculous deliverance. This man took a pen and parchment and he wrote the psalm we've just read, Psalm chapter 46. Over the years, this psalm has been a comfort to many a fearful Christian in time of trouble. It's been said, Psalm 46 assures us that God can handle in His will, in His own good time and way, things which seem like total disasters to us. If you're faced with fearful circumstances, you should pay close attention this morning to Psalm 46. The psalm is divided into three stanzas. In verses 1 through 3, God is seen as a refuge. In verses 4 through 7, God is a river. And in verses 8 through 11, God is seen as the ruler. Each stanza, you'll notice, ends with the word selah, which was a musical notation. It signaled an interlude, a bridge where the instruments played while the previous thought was mulled over and contemplated. It means literally to pause and think it over. 
hey, we'll dispel our fears, we'll excite our faith if we push pause on all our other thoughts and think of our God as our refuge, as our river, and as our ruler. Well, verse 1 begins, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. This Hebrew word translated trouble, it means a tight spot. Have you ever been in a tight spot? Options are limited. Time is running out. You feel pressured and squeezed. You're under the gun between the rock and a hard place. You're facing a no-win situation. Perhaps you're in a tight spot here today. Once a daddy came home to find his usually busy household unusually quiet. He walked in, and he noticed all five kids on the floor in the center of the living room. Well, when he saw the object of their attention, he let out a shout. For there were five cute, cuddly little skunks. Of course, when Dad shouted, it scared the kids. So each kid grabbed a skunk and ran in a different corner of the house. The upset dad was even more scared, and so he shouted again, which further frightened the kids, so much so that the scared kids squeezed their respective skunks. And we all know what happens when you squeeze a skunk. Life stinks. You see, the psalmist had these same feelings. He had the same feelings that dad had. He had the same feelings that I had when I was battling those raging rapids. He says in verse 2, Therefore we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, and though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. At times, circumstances can overwhelm us. Situations can swirl out of control. Life turns into a stinker. It's been said, life is like fighting a gorilla. You don't rest when you get tired. You rest when the gorilla gets tired. The waters of life don't always flow gently. At times, they roar with trouble. And all you can do is just hang on. You know, when people tell me that they don't want to go whitewater rafting, because they can't swim, I usually laugh. Because it doesn't matter if you can swim anyway. Nobody swims in a raging river. Fall out of a boat into white water and all you can do is reach for a rope. Tumble into roaring waters and you're definitely in an out-of-control situation. This is how it is for a flood victim. Water starts seeping under the door. Quickly, you try to stuff towels across the threshold, but you realize it's useless. You can't keep out the relentless intruder. Slowly, you watch the waters rising, covering your carpets, overtaking your furniture. It's a horrible, helpless situation. I have a friend who lives over here in Snellville who didn't know that his downstairs toilet was the lowest toilet in his neighborhood. Until the day that the subdivision sewer system backed up, his toilet just kept pouring and pouring and dumping raw sewage into his den. There was nothing he could do to stop it. That's when life really stinks. 
This is also the helpless sensation you sense in the midst of an earthquake. Or as the psalmist puts it, the mountains shake with its swelling. There's nothing you can do when the ground begins to quake under your feet, when the earth literally shakes. You're at the earth's mercy. And there are times in our lives when we all feel like a whitewater swimmer or like a flood victim or like an earthquake is going on around us, when life is out of control, it is a terribly hopeless, helpless feeling. The psalmist gives us another illustration of an out-of-control circumstance. He says, even though the earth be removed. Here's an alternative translation. Earth can mean land. Be removed can be remembered can be uh, rendered to change hands. And thus, some Bible scholars interpret the phrase, when the land changes hands. Imagine an angry army, armed to the teeth, storming your town, controlling your streets. They now dictate to you and your neighbors when you can come and when you can go. And there's nothing you can do about it. This was the scene facing the Jews in Jerusalem. Of course, we could add to the psalmist's list of -of out-of-control situations. When I lose my job, or when my toddler pitches a fit, or when a gossip is spreading lies about me, or when my teenager becomes rebellious. I don't really like to compare roaring waters and earthquakes and military invasions to parenting teenagers, but... There are some definite similarities. I mean, when kids become teens, so much now is out of their parents' control. You lie in bed at night while your kids are out and about. Your mind races. Where are they? What are they doing? What kind of trouble are they in? And you're powerless to help. At that moment, there's not a thing you can do. When my life or when the people I love are out from under my control, I'm prone to fear. And fear can gain a stranglehold on my life. It saps me of my energy. It paralyzes my initiative. It stymies my vision. Most of all, it steals my joy. Where do you run when the waters roar? Psalm 46 provides us the answer. God is our refuge in strength, a very present help in trouble. Hey, no matter how deep the waters get, God's feet still touch his bottom. Even in raging water, his legs are strong enough to withstand the current and anchor my life. No matter how severe the storm, God can shelter me through it if I hold his hand, if I trust in him. God is a refuge. My daughter used to be a cheerleader. The best there ever was, as a matter of fact. I heard thousands of cheers and chants while she was growing up. But here's my favorite. And I recruited the help of a couple of cheerleaders in training this morning. My granddaughters. Here we go. Rain can't rock this house. Thunder can't rock this house. Lightning can't rock this house. And you can't rock this house. And you. Can't rock this house. Rain can't rock this house. Thunder can't rock this house. Lightning can't rock this house. And you can't rock this house. And you 
can't wreck this house. <laughs> I'm glad Granddaddy wasn't the only one to uh, like that. Rain can't rock this house, nor thunder, nor lightning. And this is what the psalmist is saying about God in verses 2 and 3. It doesn't matter how out of control his life gets. Bring on the rain. Send down the thunder. Go ahead with the lightning. It doesn't matter to him, for God is his refuge and strength. God is what we need, where and when we need him. Here's a vital point. God is our refuge in the storm, not from the storm. Notice again, verses 2 and 3. It's not if the earth is removed or if its waters roar. It's though the earth is removed and though the waters roar and though the mountains shake. You need to know there are two kinds of faith. There's though faith and there's if faith. If faith says, God, I'll trust you if you bless me. I'll live for you if you solve my problems. I'll obey God if you make my life easier. That's not real faith. That's the kind of faith that gets washed away in the storm. Real faith is though faith. God, I'll love you though the earth is removed. Lord, I'll serve you though my life is turned topsy-turvy. I'll trust you though I feel abandoned and forsaken. The psalmist knows being a child of God doesn't insulate him from these tight spots. What it does, though, is make him eligible for God's help and comfort in the midst of those stresses. Christianity is not immunity from trouble, but community with God. Give your life to Jesus and he comes on board with all his sustaining resources. You know, I've learned that when the waters roar, I have a choice. I can focus inside or outside. Verse 4 tells us, There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. There was danger outside of the city, but the psalmist focused on who it was who abides inside the city. God is in the midst of her. I love what one author says of Jesus. We see him in the midst of the upper room after his resurrection, in the midst of the lampstands walking among the churches in Revelation. He is always in the midst. He says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Jesus doesn't take us out of the mire of this life. He rolls up his sleeves and he jumps into the mess with us. He gets in the midst of whatever it is we're in the middle of. This was his approach in saving the world. God became a man. He got down on our level. He tackled the same issues we face every day. Recall the name the angel gave to Joseph. Mary's baby would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Or as the psalmist would say, God in our midst. Notice the contrast here in verse 4. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. 
Remember in verse 3, the psalmist has talked about roaring waters. There was a rising flood of troubled waters threatening the city of Jerusalem, threatening to drown it. But there was also a stream of encouragement and rejoicing that flowed into the city under the walls to refresh its inhabitants. There was an actual physical parallel to this imagery. Before the reign of King Hezekiah, Jerusalem's water supply was outside the city walls. The Gihon Spring bubbled up in the Kidron Valley east of the city. And in anticipation of this Assyrian invasion, King Hezekiah carved a tunnel 1,777 feet long, cut through solid rock. The tunnel channels water into the city. Even today, this spring still flows through the cutout rock channel. On our tours to Israel, this is one of our favorite things to do. Some of you have actually hiked up Hezekiah's tunnel. Well, here the psalmist compares this river reservoir to God. He's saying that in the midst of the storm that's brewing on the outside of his life, on the inside, there is a stream of vitality that's flowing under the walls of his life. And God is that river. God is the artesian spring that bubbles up from the deepest part of my heart in your heart. I have a friend. His name is Kenny, and he's an expert fisherman. He has trophies of huge bass that he's plucked out of the lakes over at Stone Mountain Park. I marvel when I see his catches because I could fish Stone Mountain Park from now until eternity and never get a nibble. I've always figured that the fish over there were state employees, always on vacation. (laughs) But let me tell you Kenny's secret. He's got maps of the lake bottoms. Years ago, a river flowed around the mountain. Today's lakes were made by flooding out those riverbeds. But you see, Kenny, he still knows where those subsurface rivers ran and the underwater banks where those fish like to feed. He can send his lures to school right along those sunken riverbeds and catch his limit every time. He's a smart guy. But this is what the psalmist does when the floods come, when the troubles overwhelm him. He remembers the river that runs under the surface of his life. The Holy Spirit lives within him and within us to bring us God's joy and love and peace and strength even in the midst of our troubles. In his book, Reaching for the Invisible God, author Philip Yancey, he suggests something that would help our faith. He says we should view God's intervention in our lives not so much as coming down from above, but as rising up from below. Yancey writes, we tend to view God's interactions like light rays or hailstones or lightning bolts falling to the ground. Perhaps we would do better to picture God's interaction as an underground aquifer or river that rises to the surface in springs and fountainheads. The last stanza of Psalm 46 will describe how God comes down to intervene on behalf of His people and defend Jerusalem from her enemies. But prior to His deliverance from trouble, God rises up among his people in the midst of that trouble. God is a river of refreshment. You remember what Jesus promised us in John 7, verse 38. He who believes in me, 
as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Once a man was wandering through the desert in search of water. This guy was dying of thirst when he encountered a merchant selling neckties. What does he need with a necktie? He continued to push on. He ignored the man. He pushed on, crawling through the hot sands, desperate, dehydrated. Finally, he topped a hill and he saw a restaurant down below in the valley. Wow, he was saved. He mustered all his remaining energy and raced down the hill. And when he reached the front doors of the restaurant, there was a huge sign that read, Neckties Required. Well, likewise, when circumstances are good and you're riding high, you might not need, see your need for Jesus. You might not think this is, had anything to do with you. Why would you need Jesus? But friend, when the waters roar, and I tell you, they will. And when you go under, you'll need a spiritual river to draw on that can slake your thirst, that can provide you a supernatural surge. You'll need that river then. Well, the rest of Psalm 46 describes God's outward deliverance of Jerusalem. At the end of verse 5, the psalmist writes, God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Like Indians in the old westerns, ancient armies never attacked at night. It was always at first light, at the break of dawn. But God was ready. The nations raged, but God uttered his voice. The earth melted. Before the Assyrian troops could launch their attack, at daybreak, the angel of the Lord took the offensive. You know, it's another example of God appearing in the nick of time. Is it just me, or does this God, God does this in your life as well? You know, He's always occurring just at the nick of time. God stretches my faith, and He makes me wait. And He teaches me patience and endurance. And then when I think it's all over... The door's closed. It's too late now. He comes to my rescue. God always comes in the nick of time. The psalmist invites us in verse 8. Come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He broke, breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. And verse 10 is vitally important. If you mark in your Bible, if you do that kind of thing, here's a verse that you should underline. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. When the Assyrians attacked Jerusalem, there was never a question in heaven as to what God would do. God is God. He loves and protects His people. What made it an issue in the mind of King Hezekiah and the Jews in Jerusalem was fear. And this is why God tells them, be still and know that I am God. You see, fear grows in the noise of conflicting voices. Listen to the noise of this world and you're destined for confusion. Listen to skeptical friends. 
or a sensationalistic media or a doubting society. And it'll give sanction to your fears. In the noise, fear takes root. It's only when you come to the quiet and you let God speak to you that faith begins to grow. One author writes, The more we train ourselves to spend time with God and alone, the more we discover that God is with us at all times and in all places. The Greek philosopher Sophocles once said, To him who is in fear, everything rustles. In other words, our sense of God's presence gets lost. Our faith gets quenched. Fear fills our hearts. Doubts prevail when we get caught up in the hustle and bustle of this life. You see, God is always in control in the good times and in the bad times. But the noises of this world are what drown out that realization. We're reminded of God's faithfulness only when we're still. You know, here's the irony. As I mentioned earlier, Fear becomes a threat when my life spins out of control. Fears try to climb on board when the waters roar and I can no longer navigate. In the storm or in the flood, I'm prone to fear because I lose control. But verse 10 implies that faith also grows when I lose control. Understand, losing control is inevitable for us all. The reality is is that none of us are in control. At some point, we all face forces greater than ourselves. See, here's the difference between faith and fear. Fear grows when control slips from hands that desperately want to maintain it. Whereas faith grows when control is voluntarily given over to God. Fear and faith are both nurtured by how we respond to our out-of-control situations. When life goes haywire, faith knows that God is still in charge. He is the ruler over every situation. As verse 6 tells us, he uttered his voice. The earth melted. Engineers that design the long, tall suspension bridges realize that these bridges can conjure up fear in many drivers. This is why some state DOTs offer a driving service to bridge-a-phobic drivers to get them safely to the other side. For example, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge in Maryland is four miles long and stands 200 feet above the surface of the water. And every year, state workers take the wheel of a thousand cars to drive scared motorists across the span of the bay to the other end of the bridge. And this is the key to getting over our fears. Voluntarily taking our hands off the steering wheel of our life and literally letting Jesus drive. See, faith relaxes. It chills out. It stops spreading and plotting and conniving and manipulating, and it trusts Jesus. Carrie Underwood is right. We should let Jesus take the wheel. Just be still and know that God is God. Before Moses parted the Red Sea, he told the Hebrews to stand still. Before Ruth was adopted into God's family, Boaz told her, sit still, my daughter. Before God defeated the nations that had risen against King Jehoshaphat, he told the people of Judah, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And I hope we get it. 
before God acts, often before God does the first thing, He asks us to be still before Him. Psalm 46 closes with verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. We read earlier the name given to Jesus at His birth. It was Emmanuel. It's translated God with us. And here in verse 11, the psalmist reaches the end of his praise. He shouts out his exclamation. The Lord of hosts is with us. Or in essence, Emmanuel. He has looked over the walls of Jerusalem. And he has seen the defeated Assyrian troops. Their corpses are now scattered across the valley. And he credits Emmanuel for this victory. I believe long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he had already been to battle. The pre-incarnate Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came as the messenger of the Lord, the angel who delivered Jerusalem. And here's the point. If the Assyrian army is no match for our Lord Jesus, then neither are the troubles that plague you and me. Selah. You should pause and think this over. Is God your refuge? Have you turned the control of your life over to Jesus? Do you believe He is the ruler over every situation? And if you're a child of God in a tight spot this morning, if troubled waters are roaring and threatening your life, then you should recall that God is with you even in the midst of the struggle. Look inward, friend. Drink deeply. Never forget that a river of living water flows beneath the surface of your life. Draw from it. When the waters roar, be still and know that God is a refuge, God is a river, and God is the ruler.